Pastor said, we're going to be continuing our series uh, in 1 Peter this morning. If you've got a Bible with you or help to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, um, just where you're finding that, just to reiterate some of what John and Katie have just been saying, I'm so looking forward to Together Sunday. And we say stuff like, oh, it's the highlight of my year. I genuinely think it's going to be the highlight of my year. It's been with I for ages, really looking forward to it. Um, Helen and I were talking yesterday about, about what we were going to give and looking at what we have and thinking about our level of faith and we made a decision about what we're going to give into that offering. I would really encourage you to take this, stick it on your fridge and in the next week or so, make that decision for yourselves as well. Um, it's so much easier going into something like this thinking, right, I know if I want to give, I know what I want to give, I've made those decisions, maybe I've even filled the form out already, rather than kind of arriving and thinking, oh my word, yeah, there's an offering, what am I going to do? Do I give what? And kind of being caught in the moment. Uh, and much easier to do it full of faith as well, having had time to think about it and pray about it and decide with Jesus how you can play your part um, in what we're going to do. Wonderful. Right. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because formerly they did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is one of those uh, sections of the Bible where when you come across it, if you're just reading through yourself, um, you sort of think, I don't know what that's about, and skip on. Uh, So we're going to take our time to kind of figure out what Peter's saying to us. The first clue is that at the start, the first thing I read um, is the word for, um, which is normally a big clue to look at what's before it. So let's do that. Um, Verse 17, to the end of what Rick was looking at a few weeks ago, um, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Which also starts with the word for, um, which is pointing back to, I suppose, everything we've looked at in 1 Peter over the last few sessions, where he's hammered the idea over and over again that when people, the people he's writing to were struggling and in the midst of um, trouble and challenge, they needed to keep on doing good. And so then he says, and it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then he says what we're going to look at today. So it's better to suffer for doing good. That's the kind of thing, this statement up here, the kind of thing that I think sounds quite worthy and pithy and like it should be true, and so you start to, excuse me, and so you start to unpick it a little bit. It's better to suffer for doing good. Well, why on earth would one kind of suffering be better than another? Isn't pain bad? Certainly, I think that's, that's the way our culture thinks. That's the way probably I think most of the time. Isn't pain just bad? Why, why does the reason for suffering matter? And yet, clearly, Peter says it's better to suffer for doing good. So some kinds of suffering are better than others. And something about the reason is what makes the difference. And explaining that, explaining why this is true, is what, what I read out first, verses 18 to 22, what that does. And also what it does it is encourages the people Peter was writing to to keep on going when they are suffering. Now, that might sound like a strange thing. It's a slightly challenging passage. It's certainly got some strange things next to each other. It's not instantly clear what's going on. And I'm saying it's an encouragement. 
I mean, if you came up to me and told me about something you were struggling with, probably expecting me to encourage you that Jesus loves you and he's for you and all the rest of it. And I said to you afterwards, well, it's okay, because Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who formerly didn't obey when God's patients were in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which some people, in fact, precisely eight people, very important, um, were brought safely through water and then went on to talk about baptism. My guess is you probably wouldn't go away thinking, Tim has really encouraged me. If you were being charitable, you might think something like, it's very deep, um, <laughs> if you were being charitable. Uh, but yet, this is written to encourage the people Peter's writing to and to encourage us. How do we know that? Well, the Bible is written to encourage us. Other things too, but it's written to be an encouragement to us, even if it's not always instantly clear why. 1 Peter, the letter we're in, we've been um, spending some months looking at, is written to encourage a specific group of Christians in the north of Turkey with the challenges that they were facing being minority Christians in their culture, with the people around them um, giving them trouble, I guess, because of their faith making it challenging for them to live their faith in society, written to encourage them in that situation. And this particular session, section is written specifically to encourage people who know that they are suffering because they are doing good. And we need that encouragement too. Actually, I am fairly sure that there will be a number of people here this morning who could say that they are, they are experiencing pain, even if you wouldn't use the word suffering, but they are experiencing pain, whether emotional, mental, physical, because of choices that you have made in following Jesus. Because you are choosing to follow him, that is causing you some sort of pain. And if it isn't right now, you've either known that in the past, or you fully expect that in the future. I think there's something that all of us, if we follow Jesus, will at some point find that that causes us some sort of pain. And so even if we wouldn't use the phrase, suffer for doing good, we can empathise with where they're coming from. And we need encouraging. So he says it's better to suffer for doing good. And then, well, why? Let's, let's look at what he says. For Christ also suffered once for sin. So in verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's better to suffer for doing good because that's what Jesus did. It's a simple place to start. That's what Jesus did. He suffered unjustly. He did not deserve it, and yet he chose to do it on our behalf. So when we suffer for doing good, we are being like him. And then if I just skip the tricky bit um, and move to the end, which might sound like a dangerous move, actually can be quite a helpful thing to do in reading the Bible, as long as you come back to the tricky bit. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what is the flow of the idea Peter's getting across here, and then we'll come back to the stuff about Noah um, in a little bit, uh, because we might have somebody what's going on then. So Christ died, so better to suffer for doing good, because so did Jesus. And then on into the end of verse 21, because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So not only did Jesus suffer for doing good, but it resulted in him winning. Not only did Jesus die, and so when we experience pain, we're being a little bit like him, but after he died, he rose to life. And then he's seated at the right hand of God with angels and these authorities and powers, a kind of demonic forces, under his feet. So it has been demonstrated, like we were worshipping earlier, has been demonstrated to be glorious and powerful and strong over everything. Demonstrated to be the king of the world. And so it's better to suffer for doing good because 
Jesus did, and then he won. And so when we do so, we follow him in his victory. He's defeated the powers of evil. He will destroy them. And actually, he won through suffering. So suffering unjustly, experiencing pain for following Jesus, is actually proof that you're on the winning side. That's a strange concept to me. I don't think I think that way very often, but it's proof that we're on the winning side. Now, we should be careful with statements like that, because I find it very, very easy to make all difficulty I might possibly experience all because I'm doing good and the world is out to get me. Not everything I suffer is unjust, I suppose. Uh, To take a really trite example, if I miss the tram in the morning, I feel like the world is out to get me. And I then jump on Twitter and write some sort of, I often managed to think not to before I finished it, but write some sort of angry message to the tram company about how their service is terrible because they didn't wait for me, basically. Um, (laughs) Despite the fact they have a timetable to keep to. Why why have you not kept a timetable? I feel like, it's a trite example, but I feel like... I am suffering unjustly. I'm not. I'm just late. It's my own fault. Um, Or to frame it a bit differently, I feel like my life is a story, lots of us would feel that way, where I'm the hero. You know, the one, if you'll go with the metaphor, the one where uh, I'm the one who kind of slays the dragons and gets the princess. And that is the way I frame my life in my head. And lots of us do. We may never have thought of it like that. But lots of us do. It's not true. I am not the hero of my story. Jesus is. At best, I'm the plucky sidekick who he rescues from trouble. Um, At best. My story isn't about me. So the trouble I get into is not always because I've done great. But when I do experience pain for following Jesus, that does show me that I'm on the winning side. So are you in pain this morning? Is it because you've been doing good? Is it because you've been following Jesus? I mean, these are, these are just some examples, but you might well experience pain because you're, you're choosing to live ethically. Maybe in your workplace you are refusing to lie even though your boss has asked you to, and that's giving you a challenge. Or you're not fiddling your expenses even though everyone else is, and you're aware that somehow you have less despite the fact that you're the one who's, who's doing good. Or maybe you are choosing not to indulge your sexual desire knowing that that belongs only in a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And you're choosing not to do that, it's causing you pain. Maybe you are choosing to not have a particular medical treatment because you know it's unethical. Maybe you are, what you're choosing to do with your money, even maybe the fact that you give a large amount of it away to the church, it's a good thing, but you've got less. And even if you wouldn't frame it that way, that's painful. Maybe to go for a smaller example, maybe even you, like the entertainment choices you make. You're not watching a TV program all your friends watch because you don't think it'd be good for you. And yet when they talk about it and you think, I bet it's great, it sounds great, there's, sort of, there's a sense of pain in that. Now those are not all equal and they're kind of really varying levels of the amount of pain you might feel and we'll be at all sorts of different places here. But when we choose to follow Jesus and do right, in this world, it will cause us pain. But know this, suffering is not judgment. The fact that it's painful does not mean God is punishing you. And actually, if you are are hurting because you're following, well, you're following Jesus. And Jesus suffered, and then he won. He won. 
which means that there is an end to our pain. But we'll come back to that a little bit later on. It's also worth thinking, if you're not experiencing any pain for following Jesus, if you're not suffering, are you following him? That's a question you should ask yourself. Now, I don't mean, you could hear that and think, oh my word, I haven't hurt this week. (gasps) Have I stopped following Jesus? Not like that at all. But if you're looking at your life and you think, it doesn't hurt following him, and it's never hurt following him, it's quite comfortable, and I actually predict it continuing to be quite comfortable, then you should ask yourself some serious questions about whether you are following him. That doesn't immediately mean that you're not, but I think you should consider that and look at that. If it's never hurt, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to hurt, are you following him? So that's what Peter's saying to them. He's saying, you are experiencing pain for doing good, but so did Jesus, and he won. And then he pulls in Noah as an example, which kind of can seem a little bit left field to start with. Um, so verse 20, uh, if we just... We'll come back to verse 19 in a bit. But he talks about when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And it gets very specific about the number of people in it. Um, It talks about them being brought safely through water. Noah is an example for the people Peter's writing to and for us of someone who followed Jesus or followed God and experienced trouble. So if you don't know the story, he's a man right at the start of the Old Testament who was told by God to build a really big boat in the middle of land, where there was no water anywhere near it, and told that the land would flood. So eventually this would prove to be a good idea. But it took him a really long time to build it, and as he's doing it, it looks stupid. And everyone around him told him it looked stupid. And it looked like he was doing things that didn't make any sense, though he knew he was following God. He was mocked for it by society. And in fact, him and his family were told are basically the only righteous people left on the earth at this point, the only ones following God. That's where the eight people come in. He's part of a very small community who are living for God and facing outside pressure because of their choices to do so, which is what the people Peter was writing to were feeling and what perhaps some of us might feel like. He was mocked for following, and he waited patiently for his salvation to come through the judgment that was the flood. He knew that the flood, which was judgment, would actually be the thing that saved him. And then we're also told that God was patient. So that God's patience waited in the days of Noah, which is an intriguing thing to be told, actually. Um, And Peter explains himself a little bit more in in 2 Peter chapter 3. So I'm just going to flick that. I think the word should be on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about, uh, verse 3, he talks about the scoffers who will come in the last days with scoffing, which I guess is what you'd expect scoffers to do. Um, And then following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So people are telling the Christians that Peter's writing to, why are you waiting for God to come? Doesn't look like he's going to come. Everything's just continuing as it always has. Why are you bothering to live like this? Because he's coming back. He's clearly not. That's what they're saying. And then Peter uses the example, for they deliberately overlook this fact, um, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So he's talking about Noah. He's basically saying, they forget that God's done this before. God waited, and he waited, and he waited, and then he judged. And why should we think it's any different now? that he's waiting. And he he expands that a little bit. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, so that's the judgment that's coming when Jesus returns, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. 
And this is the bit that really helps us, because then he tells us why. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that they should all reach repentance. So the reason that God is patient with the world is because he wants people to come to him. He wants them to repent. He wants them to choose to follow him and to live with him and to discover all the joy that is being with him. So to frame it back in the question that Peter's uh, original readers were facing, that they are suffering for doing good. Maybe you are feeling pain for doing good. God says he is allowing that to continue for the benefit of others. He is allowing that pain to continue as you follow Jesus so that more people can come and know him. Because he could wrap it up now. And one day he will come and wrap up history and remake the world in his image and we will live with him in a new heavens and a new earth. That's coming. The reason he doesn't do that right now and that we have to endure the challenges of living in this world is because he is being patient so that others can come and follow him. Which actually, if we think about it in the frame of history, if he wasn't, well, we wouldn't even have been born, let alone get to come and know him. And so when we feel pain for following Jesus, actually that is in part also for the benefit of others, because that is us enduring so that others can come to him, which we probably don't think about it like that very often, but is that not what Jesus did? Experience pain for the sake of others. So we're being like him when we do that. And then just before that, he uses this phrase, he talks about Jesus, this is verse 19, um, going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison, which is one of the perhaps vaguest or most confusing phrases in the Bible, I think. Thankfully, how we interpret it doesn't particularly change what the passage means, which is helpful. Um, scholars disagree. It's a little obscure. It's probably talking about specific demonic powers in the time of Noah, based on some, some other literature that people would have known. And particularly, because in verse 22, uh, it talks about the fact that Jesus is... Uh, raised to life, goes into heaven, and is now has power over all the demonic powers. So all the evil in the world is subject to him. So the, these spirits are probably the reason that the flood in the time of Noah came in the first place. So what's going on? Jesus is declaring his victory. So he's, he died, he rises to life, and then he declares to the powers who were mocking and laughing because God had died, that actually this defeat was a victory. And he says to them, I've won. He proclaims to them his, his victory, which is the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the one who's won. And that also shows us that his suffering is victory. And it means that the oppression that we face, the challenges that we face, the pain that we face in this life, much of which, I don't know about all, but much of which is somehow linked to the demonic powers because they sit behind the, the structures of society and sometimes directly try to attack us. The pain that we feel that's linked to them, well, it's short because it's ending because they've been defeated by Jesus and their day is coming. So what, what should we do? Well, we need to be patient. God is patient, so we need to be patient. We must wait patiently for the end of our pain. Now, I find it hard to wait for five minutes. I was having breakfast with some friends earlier this week. I was the first one there. Um, I was pretty sure the next person would be along within a couple of minutes. I can't stand and wait, though. I have to pull out my phone and find something to do. We're terrible at waiting. But God is saying to us, be patient. It'll be a bit longer than five minutes. It may be beyond my death. So it may be my entire life I need to wait. I don't know when he's coming back. But he is coming. 
So I need to be patient because my pain is short. Peter always frames our salvation as being something that happens in the future. Other parts of the Bible talk about the past, talk about the present. Peter always frames it as the future. He's like, your salvation is coming. There is a day when Jesus comes back and he will rescue you because you're the ones who've, who've followed him, the ones who've known him and been known by him and chosen to keep following him. He will rescue you. He will take you with him. You will be like Noah in the ark who, yeah, the flood comes, but you, you're saved through it. So why can we, is it better to suffer for doing good? Well, because it's not the final word. Our pain right now is not the final word. We've already been vindicated in the resurrection. Jesus has already won. So we can be confident. The world has no power over us. The evil angelic forces, I doubt we think about them that often, but they're overthrown. So you're in pain right now. You're in pain today. How is this good news to you? Your pain will be short. It is momentary and there is hope. Yes, momentary, by the way, God counts time. But, but momentary. No more than a few decades at most. And then, oh, you laugh, but compare that to endless time in the presence of Jesus and we start to reframe our thinking a little bit. It's hard to hold your mind in that place because we're kind of human and it's quite hard to comprehend, but it is only momentary. And your choice to follow Jesus now, even though it causes you pain, is winning you a crown of glory. You will get a well done from Jesus. And a well done that lasts forever is worth it. And then finally, Peter moves on to baptism, which again seems like a bit of a a handbrake turn. And he says, baptism now saves you which can, can kind of make our eyes jump out of our heads a little bit. Um, though he's not using the word saved in the way we often do. So he, we are rescued by Jesus by our, uh, by our faith when we choose to follow him, which actually we find out is because he's already reached down to us. You know, when we're in the darkness, like Cheryl was singing earlier, and we called out, we find that God's already there and come to us and rescued us. We're saved by grace through faith. But Peter says we're saved by baptism, and then he explains really helpfully what on earth he means by that. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So that's where dirt literally is moral filth. So not saved by baptism in the sense that baptism washes us clean from our sins. That happens by our faith in the cross. But saved uh, in the sense of our baptism being an appeal to God, or it could, you could also, the word could be pledged. It's kind of both ways. What happens when we get baptised is we say to Jesus, I am going to follow you. And we say it with the force of a legal pledge. And at the same time, we are saying, but I can't, can you help me? As a kind of legal appeal to God, saying, will you give me power? And he always says, yes. So two things are happening. We're saying, I'm going to follow you. And we're saying, please give me the power to follow you. That's what's happening when we get baptised. Why is Peter telling them this here? They are suffering, they are having pain. He's saying you need to be patient, the end's coming, so live according to your baptism in the meantime. That can seem like a strange phrase to us. Actually, what the Bible does is quite a lot in the New Testament. You say, you are baptised, come on, live like it. To put it another way, you need to endure. You need to keep going. Yes, life's hard, yes, it's painful, it's only a short wait, keep going. 
Remember that you were baptized. You said to Jesus, I will follow you, and you asked for the power to do it. He's given you the power. Keep going. So here's the challenge. Are you doing that? If you've been baptized, if you're somebody who's followed Jesus, and you've, you have, as an adult, been put into water as a, a pledge to follow him and a request for the power to do so, are you living like that? This is what Peter moves on to talking about what that looks like, um, which John will kind of open up for us uh, next time. But are you living like that? It will cause you pain. But are you living like that? And it's probably worth highlighting, I guess, that baptism is the start of the Christian journey. It's kind of how we start off, by going, yeah, I want to follow you, help me. Um, once we've, we've met Jesus, it's our kind of first step on that journey. If you're following Jesus, you know him, and you haven't been baptised as a believer, plunged into water, then I would really encourage you to do that. The Bible doesn't really know unbaptised Christians. There's a couple of people, but the reason that they don't get baptised is because they die before they get a chance. So they are in the presence of Jesus instantly. They're rescued by him. It's not the thing that allowed them to know him, but it is the first step on that journey. So if you haven't done that, I would really encourage you to do so. And then if you have, or when you have, live right, endure, keep going, live according to your baptism. That's how baptism saves you, because it's a thing to which you go, yes, I promised, and he's given me the power, I'm going to keep going. And we keep having to remember that. We all need to be encouraged to keep going, otherwise we'll never make it. But with his help, we will. So you're in pain? Know this, your pain is not the final word. Keep going. You will escape the judgment of God that's coming, just like Noah escaped the flood. But by baptism, you have passed through. And let me tell you this you're in pain. I've read the end of the story. Jesus wins. All of the Bible is given for our encouragement, particularly the book of Revelation, given to encourage us that the Lamb wins. It's a done deal. You keep going and you will find victory at the end of the path. It's not, it doesn't matter how well you do. You, just, you keep going, keep following him, keep choosing to do so. You will find at the end of it, Jesus he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I have defeated the powers coming to the earth to come. I'll probably say a lot more than that. The lamb wins, Chris. So we... Um, we're a bit like the people in 1 Peter. We, we know pain because we follow him. And we need to be patient waiting for the day that's coming. And we have to be encouraged to keep going. But Jesus has won. He's won. What we're going to do now is we are going to worship the Jesus who's won. No, we're not. Duncan's going to say something because I've just looked at the clock. That's fine. I'm going to pray for us and then Duncan's going to talk to you briefly. But Jesus has won. Jesus, thank you that you are the victorious king who reigns over all the earth. That through your death and your resurrection and your ascension, the world has seen you to be glorious, and that's who you are. You're the king of everything. Thank you that you have taken us with you, that we know that if we follow you, we can be certain about our destination, that the pain that we know now is momentary and it is passing, and that it will end. That hope is a certain thing. That hope is coming. That you are coming. That you are going to return. 
and seal everything and remake the world in your image and draw us to you. Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus? Would you comfort us in our pain? Would you give us the power to keep going? But above all, help us see that you have won and that we, Jesus, we love you. Thank you, victorious King, that we win with you. Amen.